Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you. We're in Numbers 23 today. If you didn't bring your Bible, shame, shame, shame. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would speak with us in this time, Lord, that, that Jesus would be exalted. We ask for the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit to continue to minister. We just confess this morning, Holy Spirit, that we need you. We need you to grip our hearts again. Lord, we're prone to wonder, the old hymn said. We're prone to grow stale and tired. We ask this morning that you would revive us again. Draw us closer to your glory. Fill our hearts with zeal for Jesus. May this region be one with the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Let every saint say amen. Amen. William Tyndale, the reformer, wrote the Evangelion, or the Evangelion, as we say it in, in Greek, uh, is the gospel. That the gospel is good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a man heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. The reformer said the gospel makes a man sing, dance, and leap for joy. Tyndale was obviously remembered for his work in Bible translation. He was so frustrated with the lack of biblical literacy uh, in the day that he uh, really wanted to see the scriptures translated from Latin into English. Now, Wycliffe, some John Wycliffe, some 100 years earlier, uh, went about the same task, and Wycliffe, Wycliffe was condemned. He, uh, he wasn't martyred, but Wycliffe, they dug up his bones and burned them later just to declare him as a heretic. So Tyndale is going to be declared a heretic as well, again, for translating the Bible into English. Uh, there's a famous quote that I really like. He was, he was kind of bickering with a priest one day, and um, the priest himself didn't know the Scriptures well. And so Tyndale said, if God spares my life and many years pass, I'll cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Bible than you do. Um, in 1536, they strangled him to death. They put him on a kind of on a pole to get ready to, um, to torch him. And they strangled him to death, and then they burned his body. He had been in prison for about a year and a half. Someone kind of ratted him out. And, um, but famously on the, on the stake, he prayed, uh, Lord, would you open the eyes of the king of England? And just three years later, the king of England required every church in England to have an English translation in Scripture because it needed to have the Bible. So we see in Tyndall's life this kind of courage, steadfastness, perseverance, but remembering that he says the gospel makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing with joy. So in Tyndale, we, we see this phenomena that's totally unique to the church, but is attractive and beautiful about the church, and it's that the, the church under persecution perseveres with a smile on her face. That even in the face of great trial and in the face of great hardship, the church has confidence and, and faith and courage because she rests fully in the sure word of God. We rest that, that God has spoken. The gospel uh, deposits in us pure joy because we know God is true and not a liar. And he has called us the righteous of Christ. He has called us his sons and daughters. Our adoption is sure. He has transferred us. This is Colossians 1. That God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Sometimes I need two microphones just to get going. Um, <laughs> Thank you.
And, and all of those things are sure and true and final. And so Tyndale marches on with courage. We return today to this, this narrative about Balaam, this kind of sorcerer seer who's trying to curse Israel from the hilltops. And I was thinking this morning, there, there's actually no reason to believe that Israel has any idea what's going on. Israel is camped in the plains of Moab. Moses has told them that they're called to, to, to go into the promised land and to drive out the Canaanites. And so they are um, camped in the plains of Moab with their minds set on the promised land. They, they don't want to fight with the Moabites. They've actually been commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 2 not to fight with the Moabites. Um, but with all that being said, the Moabites are, are on the mountaintop. The leader, Balak and the Midianites... And they now have the greatest sorcerer for hundreds of miles. And they're trying to curse Israel, who is in the camp, feeding their children, preparing meals. Maybe Moses is going to the tabernacle to pray. But they have no idea that there's this kind of battle, if you will, happening in the mountains above them. It's kind of this picture of spiritual warfare, that there's this demonic agenda to destroy Israel. Israel doesn't even know what's going on. What's beautiful here is, what we're going to see is that Israel doesn't have to know. They don't have to fight. There's no, there's no dance that they need to do. There's no jumping through a hoop that they need to do in order to earn God's favor. Because they have fully now God's favor. God's going to squelch their enemies who are trying to attack them. And they don't even have a clue. And there are many times in our lives when that way where, where there's demonic attacks or assignments or, or people are coming against us and you don't even know what's happening, but because you are kept by the sure word of God, God is squelching and squashing all the plans of hell. And you're called to live in a confidence that says, I don't need to know all that's going on. I just need to build my life upon the truth that in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I belong to God fully, finally, eternally. Now let me read to you from Numbers chapter 23. Now remember again, at this point in the narrative, we're studying these kind of cycles where Balaam and Balak are preparing sacrifices and what they're doing is they're going to prepare a sacrifice. It's kind of a ritual, some kind of pagan ritual where you, you kind of... A sacrifice in this way to try to conjure up communication with the gods. And so last week we read the first cycle where they went to a high place of Baal. They sacrificed seven, uh, seven rams, seven goats, uh, on seven altars in the high place of Baal. And then Balaam went to a secret place to try to hear from God. God kind of ignores their sacrifices. Obviously we know from scripture that God does not receive sacrifices from the high place of Baal, but he just kind of plunges straight in to declaring to Balaam that the people of Israel are beautiful to him, they are his bride, they shall not be cursed. So what we're going to find today is that Balaam's going to, and Balak, they're going to turn to a second place, to a second high place to try to curse Israel from. Now, we don't know exactly what's happening here, but what we do know is in sorcery and in um, kind of pagan concepts of cursing, sometimes they believed that you had to be able to see the people you were cursing. And if the curse didn't work, which it didn't work in the first time, it might have been the location. So they're going to change locations. Now, that could be because they don't think they have the right sight of Israel. Or it could be because many times in, in pagan religion, gods have territory. 
And so it might be that in, in on this mountain, the God of Israel um, has power. But if we go to this mountain, we, we may be able to cause him to curse. And what they're going to find today is that um, it actually all belongs to God. It's all his territory, which is beautiful. So let's read the, the text. We'll, we'll try to do again a little bit of recapping just to jog our minds of where we are. And we're going to study today what's called the second oracle. Uh, and it's actually really beautiful. There's some theological truth. Balaam goes to a seminary this morning. Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. He took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offerings while I meet with the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? Behold, I receive a command to bless. He is blessed I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought, or what God has done, accomplished. Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself, it does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Balak says to Balaam, do not curse them at all and don't bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? Now remember again that, that Balaam is this kind of pagan sorcerer, pagan witch doctor who's been brought to pronounce a curse on this people Israel. Israel's encamped at the plains of Moab, Balak's the king of Moab. He sees them. There are, are literally, at this point in time, millions of Israelites. Balak knows that there's no way he's going to conquer them with military power. There are way too many. And they have this strange relationship with their God. So, we don't think enough about this, but it's worth thinking again about the fact that Israel is living in the desert. There's no vineyards in the desert, there's no crops in the desert. Israel is not only living in the desert, but they're having children in the desert, babies, raising them in the desert, and somehow they're fed, watered, and happy. And so uh, there's this strange thing that's happening as God is declaring that when a people give themselves fully to me, I will give myself fully to them. And even in the barren place, even in the wilderness where there's no crop, I give them bread from heaven. And when they're thirsty and there's no water to be found, I'll spill water from rocks. And when they're, when their clothes should wear out, I'll cause their sandals to never wear out because they're my people. I'll be their God and their provision. So now Balak is looking at a people. There's millions of them and they're like fed and strong and prospering in the desert. And so there's this, there's this, um, clarity in the fact that Israel is blessed 
cared for by their God. And so if Balak wants to overthrow them, wants to destroy them, he first needs to curse them, ruin their relationship with their God. And so, again, they're doing this kind of pagan sorcery. And so Balaam's going up, he's offering sacrifices to try to conjure up the gods. And the Lord first says to Balaam, you shall never curse this people. They are devoted to me, beautiful. I belong to them. They belong to me. They shall not be cursed. So the second round, again, Balak's going to say, look, your sorcery didn't work over there. Let's do a little retry. He's a very brilliant man. Um, that sarcasm. S- s- let's retry on Pisgah, this other mountain. And we studied today the second retry. They offered more uh, bulls, more rams on seven altars. And Balaam this time says, you stay by the sacrifices. I'm going to go be alone and try to hear from God. When he comes back, he releases his second oracle. Now, remember again that the, this kind of narrative of Balaam's donkey, right? That God can cause a donkey to speak. And that's kind of rolls over into Balaam. Even with this pagan seer, God's going to cause his mouth to be open and he will prophesy the word of the Lord. So today we read his second oracle. I want to work through it slowly. We're going to try to understand all that's happening here. First, Balaam says, rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will not he do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? Again, Balaam here goes to seminary and has a theology lesson. Balaam, again, we've said before, is kind of this master of pagan religions. He knows all of the gods and and all of the ways to worship. He knows all of the kind of hoops to jump through and rituals to perform. Balaam knows paganism. And the pagan gods are manipulative. The pagan gods, um, you can bring a sacrifice to get what you want from them. They're very much easy to to control, manipulate, win over. Um, And so uh, Balaam's used to the gods being... Um, easily bribed. But now he goes to the God of Israel and the God of Israel declares, I am not a man that I should lie nor a son of man that I should change my mind. The book of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 6 verse 18, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, listen to this, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, one, which is that it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The author of Hebrews says that to, to Abraham, to God's people, God swore, God promised it's impossible for God to lie, and he swore an oath. So Israel, their, their confidence is founded upon, first, this plain theological truth revealed from the start of scripture to the end, our God cannot lie. Everything he speaks is utterly true. He is the fountain of truth. Everything that flows in this word or from his lips is fully and final truth. And then he says this, has he spoken and he will not do it, or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? So Isaiah is going to say it this way in chapter 55 verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, one, it's impossible for God to lie. He is the fountain of truth. Two, our God is omnipotent and fully strong, all-powerful. So everything he sets out to accomplish, 
He will accomplish because there is no limit or confinement to his strength. So Israel has this confidence in in the theological implications of their God. One, he never lies. Two, everything he promises will come to pass because there is no confinement or limitation to his strength. He's not limited by a territory. He's not limited uh, in, in any way, stretch or imagination. He's fully omnipotent. Now, what's being referred to here is this. Plainly, we've said this so far in our series, but let me just reiterate here. There's a fundamental promise to scripture in Genesis chapter 12. It's when God begins to speak to Abraham. It's actually, um, it's core to the entire scriptural narrative. So like in Galatians, for instance, Paul's going to continually interact with Genesis chapter 12. And that promise was this. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So hundreds of years prior, God spoke to the father of Israel and said, You shall be blessed in me forever. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All those who bless you will be blessed, and all those who curse you will be cursed. Now, we just read that from a theological perspective, God can't lie. So that promise to Abraham must stand forever. And God, not only can God not lie, but God is fully capable and committed to fulfilling all that he has promised. So, where the pagan gods can be bribed and manipulated, Balaam the sorcerer comes to Yahweh and says, I want to bribe you to curse your people. And God says, one, I am not a son of man that I should change my mind. What I spoke to Abraham stands, two, I will accomplish it by the strength of my strong arm. So Israel's entire confidence resting is in this promise to Abraham that she should be blessed forever. Next he says, I have not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor have, have I seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no encampment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, look what God has wrought, look what God has done. God says, I see no misfortune in Jacob or trouble in Israel. He says, I am with them as the shout of a king among them. Here we get this imagery of this heroic, courageous warrior king who stands in the camp of Israel and shouts with boldness and confidence and ferociousness. And God says, I am the king in their midst. God brought them out of Egypt with signs and wonders, declaring to the Egyptians that he was sovereign and that these people were the people of his choosing, with plagues and judgments. He ripped Egypt's hands off of Israel, caused Egypt to empty her pockets, and blessed the people as they left. He is for them. I love this one. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. You have this imagery of bull runs, right? And everyone just getting the junk out of the way because there's a furious, strong bull running through the streets. Here, this is how God's, he's, he's displaying his own character this way. He's saying, I am like a wild, devouring ox that will, will bulldoze over any who get in the way of Israel. He says, no encampment will stop me. 
No curse could hinder me. And when all is said and done, God says, the nations will look at Israel and say, look what God has wrought. Look what God has done. You guys want to see me do a little jig right there? Um, I've been working on a little something. The nations will look at Israel and say, look what God did. It's impossible to go there and think of the nations looking at the people of Israel in the promised land flourishing and hearing the nations say, look what God has done, and to not think of Jesus on the cross of Calvary saying, it is finished, saying, I have accomplished on the behalf of the people full redemption and salvation. On Israel, the nations will not look at Israel and say, she's smarter than us, she's stronger than us, she had better leadership than us. The nations will look at Israel and say, her God is mightier than all of the pagan deities. And in the same way, the nations will look on the church and they will not say, the church was filled with the wise. Paul says, God will use the foolish in the world to confound the wise. The nations will look on the church and say, her God is beautiful. And he has done it. Finally, Balaam says, behold a people, a lioness, it rises up and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Here, he speaks of Israel as of a lioness who stands up to attack her prey and will not lie down until she has feasted on the blood of her enemy. He's very much referring to the Canaanite conquest here. That that Israel will be like a lioness who charges towards Canaan and will run over all of her enemies and not lie down and rest until the project is accomplished. She will be victorious in taking the promised land. Now remember again that Moab is outside of the promised land and Israel actually doesn't want the, the Moabites' land. So in a way, Balaam is saying to Balak, if I were you, I'd leave that one alone. If I were you, I would not get in the way of a ferocious lioness. She is taking territory. She is on the move. She will not settle until she's accomplished all that she intends to accomplish. Now, from there, let's just do a little bit of reflection and try to consider how these Old Testament ideas and concepts playing out in the people of Israel apply to us today. First, obviously, Balaam is saying God is true. His promises will be fulfilled. The blessing of Abraham will stand. Paul tells us that the seed of Abraham is actually Jesus Christ. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are in the promise and the blessing of Abraham. We are Abraham's children. Those of us who are um, Gentile, not by ethnic bloodline, but by, by faith, by a heritage of faith. We participate. We are grafted in. Romans uh, chapter 9 through 11. We're grafted into the promise of God to Israel. We are fully and finally blessed because we have faith in the seed of Abraham who triumphed over death itself. One, every promise of God towards the church is yes and amen, fully, finally, and forever. You are to have confidence, supreme, utter, utmost confidence because no power of hell, no demonic entity, no cultural engagement movement could ever strip you of the blessing of God because first, your God cannot lie. So when he says, I have uh, grafted you in or I have transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, when God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, when God calls you the very righteousness of Jesus, when God says, you are full of the Holy Spirit, it is 
absolutely, utterly impossible for God to lie, that promise stands forever. Jesus says, no one will pluck you from my hand. I'd like to expound on that for a moment for you. That means nobody. Paul says in Romans 8, not height, depth, power, principality, demonic uh, strength will ever separate you from the love of God. That means stop fretting, stop worrying, stop biting your nails. You are so kept in the perfect, full, final words of God. We are to carry confidence and instill confidence in our children, in the truthfulness of our God, and His second, the efficacy of His Word, the the efficient ability to fulfill all that He has said. So, we believe God's true, so everything He spoke about me, that I am no longer guilty, but I'm a clean son, is true, and everything He speaks concerning my future must come to pass because of His own omnipotence. So God has promised to us that we'll be the head and not the tail. God has promised to us that we will um, see full and final redemption on the earth. God has promised to us that Jesus will return. God has promised to be our manna. Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. I am the fountain of living water. All who come and drink will never thirst again. Those promises will be fulfilled because the efficacy of God's word, his omnipotent power. And finally, I think it's worth thinking about Israel rising up like a lion to devour the promised land. And to recognize that, biblically speaking, we do this thing very often where we talk about the promised land as heaven. Like we're sojourning towards the promised land or sojourning to heaven. Most scholars would agree that that the promised land is not a picture of heaven, but it's a picture of the Christian life. Because in the promised land there are like, like... Giants and battles to be fought, and they're going to have to. They're they're not going to just in heaven. I'm pretty confident. I think I can make a strong biblical case that in heaven I'm going to have a hammock like by the beach. Okay, and Jesus Jesus is going to be glorious. Um, In heaven, I'm not fighting. Okay, there's no bloodshed. Um, But the promised land is not something that it's not pictured as heaven. It's something Israel is going to have to believe God for, march towards, walk in faithfulness and faith to take. And in that sense, the promised land looks more like the church in faith marching towards her final purpose of seeing the kingdom of God subdue the nations. So when you think that way, this picture of Israel as a ravenous lion, if you're trying to draw some connection to the church, I think you could say that we would think about Jesus' words when he says, the gate of hell will not prevail against my church. When we think about the, the promise of Revelation that um, in the last day, before the courtroom of heaven, every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, people group, socioeconomic class will worship Christ Jesus, then we'll begin to rest in the promise that the church will bring the kingdom to the four corners of the earth, period. In seasons, it may look like we're struggling. In seasons, the church may may flourish and then retract, and God may refine, God may raise up a remnant, but when all is said and done, the church will carry this gospel to the four corners of the earth in the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and the nations will come and worship Christ Jesus. So there's confidence. Confidence in the promises of God concerning who I am. Confidence in the promise of God concerning what I will do and accomplish and see. And confidence in the promises of God concerning my final end. I am confident. 
Now, Tyndale, or the, it's, think of Tyndale now, saying, this gospel causes my heart to be glad and to sing, and then to recognize that his kind of hero, his bones were dug up and burnt, he does not believe that his life must be comfortable. Okay, the church's message was never, receive Christ and have more money, be blessed, have ease, you'll never struggle with any kind of sickness, you'll, you'll just lay around and be fat and happy. The, the promise isn't comfort, the promise isn't ease, the promise is that God's words concerning us shall come to pass. The promise is not that we'll walk into the promised land and everyone will just fall before us. There may be a fight. Paul says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers of the air. There's a wrestling that takes place in the church. The promise is that though I'm wrestling and at times I feel pinned, when all is said and done, I will get up victorious. And like Joshua before the five kings, we'll put our heels on the neck of our enemy. And the nations will come and love Jesus. Why? Because he said so. Because he accomplishes all that he says. Because he has perfect foreknowledge and sovereignty over the entirety of history. So when he speaks of the end, he knows exactly what he's talking about. We live with boldness, courage, confidence. Aware of the struggles to come. But even more aware of our final end. Loved by Jesus, victorious in Jesus, grafted into his kingdom. Now, I want to pray just for a moment over this word. I want to ask God to deposit in us a courage and a confidence that we pass on to the generations. And then we'll slide into a time of ministry. So Father, today we rest. Come on, I want you to pray with me. God, I rest today in the, in the word of God, which is true. Your word is always true. You are the fountain of truth. We rest in every promise in Jesus being yes and amen. God, we rest today in your omnipotent power, your perfect ability to cause to come to pass everything that you intend. Your purposes and plans are unchangeable, Hebrews 6 says. We rest, Lord. Three, God, we rest in your foreknowledge and your sovereign decrees concerning the future. We know that everything you said about the end will come to pass. And when it feels like we're struggling and wrestling with hell, Lord, we ask that you would deposit in us a supreme boldness by the power of the Spirit to keep fighting by the word of God, our sword, to keep standing in the shield of faith, to keep on our chest the breastplate of righteousness says, God justifies who can condemn. Would you cause us to stand with the helmet of salvation, to think like Christians, to have our minds renewed, and in the, the shoes of readiness granted by the gospel of peace, ready to march on. Make us bold in Jesus' name. When hell whispers that we're weak, Lord, we ask that we would remember that in our weakness you are made strong. May our kids be bold. May our grandkids be courageous. May we deposit in generations to come a great faith, confidence. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Let every saint say amen. 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 If you stand to your feet, we'll slide into a time of ministry here.